Hey everybody, this is Luna Tan, and this is Dwayne Paris. You are listening to Clubotech Publishing Radio. Here we talk about what's happening in the publishing industry today, share stories and insights from publishers, and discuss how we can shape the future of publishing. Welcome to Clopotech Publishing Radio again. I'm your host Luna Tao, and I'm Duane Paris. This time, we are very excited to have Matt Bear with us, and we're going to dive into the world of book manufacturing today. Matt Bear is the executive director of the Book Manufacturers Institute, or BMI. He has been the chief executive of the association since 2017. Matt has a long career in association management, primarily working with trade associations. He holds an undergraduate degree from the Catholic University in Washington D.C., as well as graduate degrees from Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. It's great to have you with us today, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, before we start talking about anything else, so firstly, I'm wondering. Uh, what is your career path like?、Um, what kind of experience brought you to the helm of a book manufacturers institute? Yeah, sure. Well, it's funny when you talk to people who work for associations.、Uh, I think ninety-eight percent of them would tell you that they never thought they'd be working for an association. It's just one of those things that that I think most people fall into, and I am. Very similar in that path,、uh, in that I fell into it. So I did my my undergrad degree in human resources in Washington D.C. and I was working in HR. Kind of got bit by the dot com bubble bursting、uh, back in in around 2000 and ended up needing to go to grad school. So because、uh, <laughs> I lost my job when a bunch of layoffs happened and. Out of grad school,、uh, I got an MBA and a master's in sports administration, and I've always been a big、uh, sports guy.、I、played soccer in college, and my first job out of grad school was out of college, and that was that was enjoyable. But my wife and I wanted to get back to DC, so I took an HR job back in DC so we could move. And and the first job that my wife got was with a college friend of hers who worked for an association, and then all of a sudden they had a job opening for a director of membership. And she goes, I think you'd be really good at this. And I looked at it and I said, Well, wait, this is this is recruitment and retention. This is benefits. This is HR. It's just for external people instead of internal people. And so I interviewed and got the job. And it was with a company called Infocom, and they were the professional audiovisual trade association. So companies that installed all kinds of high tech AV in boardrooms and classrooms. Companies that run AV at hotels and event venues and things like that, and and I, I just had a blast. I really enjoyed working for an association, a nonprofit whose whose mission really is to do things for for companies that you know maybe it would be just way too expensive for them to do on their own, but an association could collect money in this case dues, right? Dues revenue or event revenue. And create something that would help an entire industry, and really help them better, better the industry, better each company. Even though maybe they compete with each other for customers and for revenue, that the association can really help them in other ways. And I really have enjoyed 
that way of thinking and that business model. And so over the years now, I've worked for four different trade associations mm -hmm. uh, in four completely different industries. So I started with professional AV. Then I went to crane and rigging and heavy haul, which is, you know, completely different. And then data and marketing, direct marketing at the, at the DMA. And then now I'm at book manufacturing. So it's been awesome because, I, like I said, I really enjoy the overall goal of a trade association. And, and also, it's, I've gotten to, to learn so much about different industries and meet so many different people and associations. The people who engage in associations and are really part of association leadership, they, they're, they're volunteering. They're doing it because they want to. And, and that they want a better industry and that kind of genuine caring for the industry that they're in usually shows in, in a lot of different ways and they tend to be just great people to work with. So, so that's kind of how I got from your coach to, uh, to running a trade association that, that in book manufacturing. Very interesting experience. I was uh, listening. So I, uh, I was also wondering that after working in so many different fields with different people in different industries, now you are in this leading role of the BMI, this association. I, I'm just wondering what is uh, most important quality or the most important um, skills you learned from the, your previous experience? No, absolutely. It's a great question. I think I think it's twofold. Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of them, but I would say two major ones. One is a a willingness to learn. I've been in a book plant. I've seen how books are made. I've gotten behind the the controls of a small crane when I worked at the, mm -hmm. the specialized carriers and rigging industry. I learned some some AV things and even had my my AV certification for a little while so i mean one of the things i think has helped me be successful in association work is is my willingness to jump in and and learn about whatever industry it is that i'm working in and i think the more curious you are and the more willing you are to to learn the the more successful you'll be and that's probably true in almost any field but and kind of coupled with that is is a willingness to listen. And you're going to learn a lot more by listening, but really asking the right questions and hearing the responses of members. What is it that they're looking to do in the future? What is it that they really need help with? And you as the association taking all that in and figuring out ways to answer those questions or come up with things that will help them in their business and even personally in some instances but those two things really are the crux of it and and i guess if i had to put a third point on it it would just be the ability to build relationships because an association is is built on relationships you're helping to in most instances in a trade association you're you're helping build relationships networking business development between members between members and their clients uh, maybe even between other associations, which is a big part of, of BMI, because uh, we work a lot with the various publisher associations because they are the customers of the BMI members. So I guess it would be those three things. So, Matt, would you tell us a bit about the history of BMI, how it has built its membership to over 90 members and now represent 
pretty much all areas of book manufacturing? Sure. Well, we're lucky enough in August, we will be celebrating our 90th anniversary as a as an association. Wow. So we, we've been around a while. And I think like most associations that were founded in, in the early 1900s, you had a group of people that were in a particular industry, in this case, book manufacturing, kind of look around the country and see, oh, how are you doing things? Because, I mean, you got to think about it back in the 20s and 30s. If you were doing business in Chicago, you really weren't competing with somebody who was doing business in New York. We didn't have the globalization, let alone, you know, nationalization, globalization of business that we had, we have today, you know, almost 100 years ago. So you could, people, I think, got together and said, okay, how can we learn from each other? And in typical fashion, they, they said, oh, well, this is great. Let's form an association and, and figure out how we can continue to learn from each other. So that was back in 1933 was when they were incorporated as an association. And, you know, there's there's been all kinds of uh, ups and downs in that 90 years. I mean, a group spun out pretty much right away that was focused on library binding because that was a very specific component. So they, they became the Library Binding Institute. And then, funny enough, fast forward 75 years, and, and then the LBI had changed their name to the HBI, Hardcover Binding Institute, and, and they've now remerged with BMI. So now they're they're back to being part of BMI. Um, and then you look at just the overall change in the book landscape, say pre pre 2008, right? I mean there were there were a lot more members than we have now, but in 08 you had the crash and the Kindle. And that changed the landscape of of book manufacturing and and you know since then there's been a ton of of mergers and acquisitions, companies combining, some companies unfortunately going out of business. There was uh, initially a, a precipitous drop in book manufacturing around 08, but now that has has climbed back. And funny enough, the you know how awful the pandemic was, it did spark a a little bit of a resurgence in people enjoying the printed book. They were at home, they they wanted to read, and and I think if you uh, continue to look at all the surveys of people, most you know a large majority still prefer the tactile feel smell look of a physical book rather than than reading on an electronic device uh, 90 years we're still we're still around mm -hmm. uh, un unlike some other uh, associations uh, in different industries but we're happy that to be here and we've you know we lost a, a handful of members over the years but have been able to bring some back and new companies are coming into the space that's very good and Matt you mentioned the Kindle. So how have you been able to navigate around that with the Kindle and now a lot of different options for electronic books? How has the printed book industry navigated around those obstacles? Our folks, I, you know, when I tell people about what I do in our association, I kind of say, you know, we're the guy behind the guy, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, we, m most of our companies, uh, that are printing and binding books, no one in no one would know who they are. We we are in kind of mm -hmm. behind the scenes, right? Now, mm -hmm. most people have heard of Penguin Random House, or you know maybe Scholastic or Wiley mm -hmm. or some of these big publishers. You know, folks may know those names. What they may not know is those people aren't actually printing their own books, right? That's what our folks do. So, it really 
they're the ones who have to make these big hard decisions about how many uh, units to print versus how are they going to sell them digitally or how are they going to offer them digitally. I think the biggest change has come in the higher education space, colleges moving moving away from the big textbook, and and I think primarily because of cost, right? If if you you know the old two hundred and fifty dollar textbook was never something anybody really wanted to to deal with, and and so I think that was the first that made the most sense for for that to change. Now. Regular textbooks, K-12 textbooks, you know, they're not at that price point, so they haven't been hit as hard, but they're still being hit. And then you get down to the trade books, you know, your $30 hardback at Barnes & Noble. Well, that that's not as uh, tough a pill to swallow for a lot of people. And, and, and I think companies, publishers, you know, they may have, they may have missed the mark on pricing, uh, may mm-hmm. have overpriced electronic options for people. But I think most people just assume, oh, well, it's electronic. That means it doesn't really cost anything. And, and that's just not the, the truth, right? They're, even electronic versions have hard costs built into them. And so when you look at it over, I mean, we've got some research on our website around parental preferences in K-12 reading and textbooks. And, it, and it's like four to one how people just thoroughly believe that you're going to get more out of reading from a printed textbook or printed book. And there is some some pretty good research out there, which you can also find on our website around retention of knowledge is higher when done through a printed source rather than digital. There is something scientific around engaging multiple senses in the reading and reading comprehension things that you don't get in a in a digital format. And so uh, people thought the book was going to die back when the Kindle came out and it just has proven over the last 15 years just to not be the case. Excellent. I do appreciate you mentioned this point that just as you said, so many people are only saw the big names, the uh, names of publishers on the, on the book cover, but we sell them we think about the heroes behind the scene. So just want to take this moment to take my head to all the all the heroes that uh, make the paper books possible. And I also appreciate you uh, help us understand the brilliant history of um, BMI. So my next question is about this recent couple of years. We say the book industry has changed a lot uh, over the last few years from the paper shortage, the supply chain issue, and now there seems to be a new round of demand increase. So for all of this, how do you interpret this change? Do you have any insights you want to share? Yeah, I mean, it has been obviously a crazy couple of years, right? With the pandemic shut down so much of the supply chain, right? So for the book industry, it was tough because demand actually went up, right? So now all of a sudden, companies all over the world didn't have people in their manufacturing facilities making all the, the components, the paper, the end sheets, the board, the, the whatever it is that's going into the book. There were less people actually doing the transportation. You had massive shipping delays. So you had just a just an onslaught of things that affected the book industry. 
the paper shortage was was the big one and and i think that's the one that will continue to be an issue we've actually seen a lot of private equity come into the paper market buying up paper companies and mills and there was a massive shift of paper machines switching over to packaging during the pandemic because everything was was delivered right it was all amazon it was all shipped to your home and so the demand for packaging materials went sky high and the margins on that are just better than book paper so for these paper companies it made more sense to switch the machines and that's not it's not something that you can just switch back and forth right it, it, it's just it's way more complicated than that so we've seen a good bit of book paper capacity come out of the market over the last you know five years or so and and that's stuff that's just not coming back um, so what I think you're going to see is more standardization around paper. Like, let's say, I mean, I think what most folks probably don't understand is there are just hundreds and hundreds of different papers out there the, from their weight to their opacity, to their color, whether they're coated or uncoated, there's just all these different papers. And I think back before the paper market started to change, all the different publishers like, oh, I really, you know. I really like this paper because of its feel or the way the ink sits on it. And it became, you know, very, something very specific. And now that paper just may not be available anymore or available mm -hmm. in the quantities you want anymore. And I think what we're going to see is, and what we've already seen our publishers have now had to make the choice of, okay, well, I'd rather just have the book than have to wait for the exact paper I want. And, oh, at the end of the day, the customer doesn't really care that much whether it's 80% opacity versus 90% opacity. Like they, it's just the level of detail just may not matter as much as, as at least it was perceived to matter. And so I think we're going to have to see a standardization around papers just to make sure there is enough paper to go around uh, for everybody to do what they want to be able to do with it. Um, and in terms of, you know, we had so many shipping problems, right? Especially from China where, you know, what used to take a month was taking four months or six months and, and costs were 10 X on a, on a container. And, and it was just crazy. And so a lot of the printing that was maybe happening in Asia mm -hmm. came back to the United States to make sure that they could publishers can guarantee they had inventory in the United States uh, on hand. And, and so some of that has gone back to China as China's opened up and, and costs are just cheaper. And there's certain printing that just does better there is there's just not capacity here for it but i think folks are trying to figure out how to balance that demand right and 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 we had a lot of publishers over order over the last 12 months because they wanted to make sure they had everything they needed and now demand with the inf with inflation and everything happening demand has started to slow and so now there's publishers sitting on inventory which means they're ordering less from our people so now if you look at, we, we do a monthly barometer that we've done for about a year now, just seeing what capacities and lead times are. And back last summer, they were just slammed. Spring and summer of last year, our folks were just, just work coming out their ears. And that has slowed down dramatically because I think a lot of that was almost panic buying by the publishers to make sure they had enough on hand. Um, so, so we're going to see how the next 12 to 18 months unfolds. Uh, I think a lot of it's tied to, to inflation driving or being the, the major factor of consumer demand. And that kind of 
fall to determine how much publishers order, which is to per determines how much our folks are making, and and it just goes from there. I think that's a good lead into my next question: is um, what are some of the valuable resources and support uh, your members would get from the BMI? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So, I mean, one of our big things, I kind of mentioned it before, just in terms of what I like, enjoy about working with associations is is really just trying to do the things that might be hard for companies to do on their own or that they could get more out of if we do them for the whole industry. So a lot of what we work on is is education and research, and that comes in many different forms. Um, you know, we do our surveys every month around the barometer. We're getting ready to launch our state of the industry report that we do annually. and those are kind of big pieces of research. We we have others as well. You know, we've worked, as I mentioned, we've got the K-12 research we did a couple years ago, as well as some white papers around the benefits of the printed book. And we do a lot of various education research. Some of the other education we do are conferences. Uh, those conferences are trying to educate both manufacturers as well as suppliers, try to, you know, share best practices, uh, and also have that networking and business development opportunities. And we do two conferences a year, a spring management conference where we try to really focus on issues that are hitting our folks today, learning some things that they could take back to their offices and put into practice. This year's spring management conference, we're talking about automation, workforce development, and supply chain, which are three you know, huge topics in the book manufacturing space. And then we have our annual conference in the fall that's more strategic and high level. You know, we may have somebody talking about the economy as a whole or or if they're, you know, if it's an election year, maybe some of the political ramifications of what might be happening. But we also celebrate the industry at that event. We have our awards gala during the fall conference. And then some other things that that would be benefits of membership. You know, we are we try to be the voice of the industry, our relationship with the publisher associations that I mentioned. We've actually created a third conference that we run called Book Manufacturing Mastered, uh, where it's getting the publishers and printers and suppliers all around the table to talk together about what's happening in the industry and how they can work together more, which has just become so important. Uh, so we will have that event in September in Manhattan coming up. So those are just, you know, some of the ways that, that we help the industry and, and our benefits of membership. You know, occasionally we'll do some some lobbying or government affairs work when needed. A few years ago, we helped strike down a, a tariff on groundwood paper that was, you know, a big issue for our members because it was an instant 30% increase in their cost of goods and in a spot where you can't weather the storm on those types of increases with those tariffs. So So we worked with other associations to lobby and, and help get that taken away. So so those are just some of the some of the things that we offer as benefits to membership. It's just like uh, stronger together, right? So uh, one of those members may not be able to solve one or some of those issues on their own, but as a community, um, you can put your heads together and uh, come with a solution. Absolutely. And, and I really lean a lot on on our members, our volunteer, our volunteers and various committees, because, you know, I tell everybody I'm not, I'm not a book manufacturer, right? I'm an association manager. Uh, <laughs> so, so I lean on the subject matter experts and, and make sure that, that we've got the best information and, and kind of coalesce that into, to something that we can then use to better the whole industry in our membership.
Excellent. Now I see how the social networking skill plays a role in your in your work. Um, and a couple of days ago, I just happened to uh, see a piece of educational research, as you just said, and uh, other studies or surveys that uh, the BMI done about paper reading and printed books. I think they are really valuable resources that um, not only the manufacturers would find useful, but also other all the publishing practitioners would find very uh supportive and useful. So the next question I want to ask is, um, I think we're now living in an age where our attention spans are constantly being nibbled away by screens. So maybe this sounds like the question Duane just asked, but if I break down the question further, uh, do you think we still need paper books? And if so, what kind of change is this demand undergoing? I doubt you would assume that I'm going to say we don't need paper books. <laughs> mm -hmm. But everybody, it's funny, I, I'm in an airport, I'm, I'm anywhere in the, in the world and say I work for the Book Manufacturing Institute and I represent the folks who print and bind physical books. 99% of the people I run into say, oh man, I just prefer a printed book over reading on a screen any day of the week. And and which is always music to my ears. But as I mentioned before, if, if you look at the BMI website right now, we have a, a tab called resources where you can, you can find a whole bunch of things. One of the things is, is the research around the K-12 book market I mentioned, which we, we surveyed a thousand parents of K-12 students. And, and, and the results are very interesting in terms of, of the way they feel about their, their children's learning. But we also have a, a white paper called Medium Matters, which really breaks down some of the science that I had mentioned before about, about why reading a printed book is important and, and how it, it helps people. But then if you look at a link that we have called Research on Print Books, it, it kind of breaks out a, a whole bunch of other articles and studies that were done around the printed book versus a digital, the digital medium. And so, you know, I think if people are trying to go away from the printed book, I think there's going to be some serious resistance, um, not only from book manufacturers, but from students, from parents, from your average reader. You know, I'm, I, it's interesting. I have a, uh, my brother-in-law is a librarian at a middle school in Virginia. And, and the role of a librarian has changed greatly over the decades, right? I mean, they're helping research online and, and find information, which is great. But if you ask librarians, they're still very eager to share the printed book and to help kids find what they need there, knowing that, that that's, you know, just a fantastic place for knowledge and, and a way to learn. And I'm excited that my, my youngest boy is eight. And yeah, he spends a boatload of time on his computer playing video games and watching YouTube videos and all of that. But more often than not, when he's walking inside the house from school, he's got a print book in his hand that, that he's been reading at school and that he wants his print book reading time with mom every night. And mm -hmm. and that's just a, a good thing. He's never once asked, oh, no, I'd, I'd like to read read a screen. 
you know, for, for him that, you know, no, I'll be, I'll watch a video or I'll play video games, but if I'm reading, I'll, he wants that print book. And that is more the majority than the minority. Um, and I think, so, you know, sometimes you get the louder, the minority voices can be louder, but, but that doesn't mean they're right or the majority. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I like, I like it very much how you bring different perspectives, like from the perspective of librarians to this, this point. Yeah. I think that speaks a lot for the real need of paper books. So Matt, is there anything that we haven't asked you today that you'd like to share with us? Well, I guess in terms of the BMI and, and the printed book in general, I would just say technology is changing and manufacturing as a whole is changing. And anybody who's looking for a career, don't bypass book manufacturing. Yes, there is some manual labor involved, but you're also working or have the potential to be working with automation and in some cases robotics and the way that these massive printing presses and other machinery that come together to form the printed book. It really is a technology industry, even though we're producing something that is analog. So for anybody looking at, at a career path, you know, this is somewhat, this is an industry that's been around uh, since Gutenberg. So it's, I don't think it's going anywhere. Uh, the, the technology has changed, but it's high tech now. And, and I think um, folks could, can really find a niche uh, if they're, if they're looking for something different and, and do not look past uh, something as quote unquote old as book manufacturing, but it's very new uh, in terms of the technology and and the way things are being done, and that will continue to change. So, uh, so that that would be the only other thing I would I would want to mention. That's re- really great, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. That, and before we end the interview, we we would like to ask you the same three questions that we ask everyone who joins us, um, which we call signature questions. So are you up for that? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. So tell us, what is your best way to get relaxed? Oh, man. Well, I guess playing soccer would be would be my number one, even though it's not necessarily relaxing. In fact, I'm going to play my, my old man soccer tonight. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, but it's nice to get a good get a good sweat in, a good run in. But if I'm getting totally relaxed, I guess it would just be a a glass a glass of red wine and and sitting on the on the couch with some Netflix, or 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 a sporting event. You know, I'm a big soccer fan and also mm-hmm. a big fan of the Washington Capitals uh, hockey team. So, although I, I pretty much watch any sport, so so that would be my answer to that. Yeah, I, I think maybe we can hang out together. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big soccer fan as well, and I play it sometimes too. So, Matt, in the history of people walking this earth, would you tell us two people that you would like to have dinner with if given the chance, and why? Oh, man, that's uh, there's a lot of people that I would want to have dinner with. But, you know, I guess... Uh, Unfortunately, I, I lost my dad to, well, 
three years ago. And uh, so uh, I'd love, love to have dinner with him again, for sure. And then maybe Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, Gary V. He's, mm-hmm. he's smart. He's fun. He, he likes sports, too. And, and, well, his dad owned a wine shop, so maybe he'd bring some really good wine to dinner. All right. Well, uh, sorry for your loss, Matt. And oh, um, I, I kind of follow Gary on the social medias as well. And, yeah, yep. he seemed like a fun guy. Awesome. Then the last question is, uh, so do you have a favorite phrase or idiomatic expression that you want to share with us? Well, if you don't mind, I'll give you two, I guess, that come to my mind. One is, so I went to a Catholic high school and had to take two years of Latin. And so I've always been a big fan of Carpe Diem, you know, seize the day, you know, make, make it your own. A, a, a big fan of that. And then I, I guess that's one I try to help focus me, right, is, okay, Carpe Diem, man, time to get stuff done and, and seize the day. But I think in terms of, of advice, the one that tends to be said more in my household uh, all the time, with, with especially for my kids, is control what you can control. That doesn't make any sense to worry about anything that's outside your your sphere of influence. Uh, but you know, don't blame anybody else for something that's happening that you could be in charge of. So, control what you can control. Awesome! I love this one as well, Carpe Diem. And dear listeners, this is Matt Bear. For more exciting news and information from the book manufacturing world, please visit the website of Book Manufacturers. Institute, which is bmibook.com, and follow BMI Book on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can find all the links in the episode notes. Matt, thank you again for the time being with us. Yeah, thank you, Luna, Dwayne. Appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll meet in person sometime soon. Would love so. Subscribe to Colopatech Publishing Radio in whatever podcasting app you listen to or get this podcast delivered to your inbox by subscribing to Clopatech's newsletter. It's free and easy to sign up. The link is in the episode notes. Special thanks to Nello Clopatech, Marian Belling, Bjorn Berger, Angie Heinrich, Stefan Kaufer, George Logan, and Mark Wintle for making this episode possible. Leave us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or email us at podcast at clopatech.com. This is Clopatech Publishing Radio. I'm Dwayne Paris. I'm Luna Tan. Thank you for listening.